Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated, and I meet a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Janet Williams, queen of the trailer park and Tennessee tramp. I first met Janet when I hosted one of the funniest nights of my life, a New Year's Eve gala in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Three headlining comics performed hour-long sets that night. Each was amazing. Janet surprised us all. You just don't expect a well-educated 68-year-old woman to open her set talking about blowjobs. But once you've laughed at that, there's nothing left to do but enjoy the show. And enjoy the show you shall. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to express my gratitude to all of you who are listening. Your letters, your comments, and your donations are deeply appreciated. Thank you for being so supportive. When I launched this podcast, I had no idea if anyone other than my mother would actually listen. It turns out I have more mothers than I thought. So keep tuning in and keep telling other people. If you haven't already done so, please rate and review us on iTunes. This is the number one way you can help us grow our audience. Let the world know what you think about learning to fail. You'd be amazed at how much they value your opinion. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com. Every episode has its own page, and we love reading your comments. While you're there, please visit our Donate and Amazon pages. Anything you can give will only help us grow. But as always, the most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. The more of us out there learning to fail, the sooner we'll all succeed. So let's tune in to my conversation with Janet Williams. Even my mom thinks the Tennessee Tramp is hilarious. They liked each other so much they ended up meeting for lunch the next day. Apparently, Janet said a lot of nice things to my mother about me, but then she swore her to secrecy so I'd never know what they were. What I do know are all the amazing things she said during our conversation. Let's check that out now. How old are you? 47. Okay. You're like um, 21 years younger than I am. So this would be, you know, you're considered a young person. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you're 47. That is young. That's when I started in comedy was 47. So um, you're a young person, and I, under, I get the social media. But you know, like Facebook? I don't post real shit on Facebook. Why would I? Facebook friends are not your friends. But what's happened in society today is people think those are their real friends. So they'll post when Aunt Mabel dies. They'll post when I've had surgery. Who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? My family and close friends will know what's going on in my inner circle. I would never post my health on Facebook. Never. It would never enter my mind to do that. Because to me, and understand this is an old woman talking, I'm 68. You know, when somebody posts, this is the one that really gets me. I really miss my mom. She died 20 years ago today. No shit. Who doesn't miss their mom that died? You know, but that's to get everybody to go, 
Oh, I'm so sorry about the loss of your mother. It was 20 fucking years ago. I'm not (laughs) saying you don't miss your mom, but you do that. You throw that out so people will give you sympathy and give you the airway hugs. Those people need counseling. Yeah, I agree with you. And why is it that everybody goes to heaven? You know, my mom's in heaven now. How do you know that? You know, is nobody going to hell? You know, but everybody's going to heaven. It may seem like I am a tarnished, critical old woman. But all this social media stuff, I think that's why you got juvenile court filling up now. Social media is responsible for juvenile court? I think that they're in great deal. Because when you're you're walking your child through the park, and you're walking along, and you're on your iPhone, that is not interacting with your child. When you go out to eat, mom and dad and two kids, and everybody's on their electronic device, that's not dinner together. At dinner's when you find out if your kid's fixing to join a gang or your little girl's wanting to dance on a pole. But you're not going to get that as long as you're on social media all the time. There's no interaction between two people. So easy. You know, when you're on Facebook, you can say anything you want to somebody and probably not what you would say to their face. Yeah, I had a serious uh, situation like that happen to me recently. Um, I just got a puppy dog, and I and I love dogs. And so and and that's so I and and part of the reason I put pictures of the dog on Facebook was for the people I adopted her from, because you know they said, "Would you mind giving us updates?" I'm like, "Oh," and initially I was like, "I don't want to be beholden to you. I don't want to be like to become a burden." But of course, I'll be happy to keep you. And posted. let me tell you, Facebook friends do love animals by and large so i don't have a problem with that well let me tell you what happened it started something that one of my other friends affectionately referred to as crate gate because uh i got this puppy in the first you know we posted pictures and a video of her playing fetch in the kitchen and everything was happy and then the next picture i posted she's sitting on the couch and i'm just not a dog on the couch guy you uh-huh. know i like dogs to be on the floor so that they understand that they're dogs and not people so that they don't start taking over the house right and i don't judge other people for letting their dogs on the couch but that's not where i want my dog but this right. is a dog that has hair and not fur and it's cute as fuck and this picture is probably just like the cutest picture of the cutest puppy and it's not even a puppy it's eight years old but she looks like a puppy and it was a really cute picture and i said uh this is not gonna work for me and starting tomorrow she sleeps in a crate well that broke all i think i saw that on facebook yeah well it's on my page okay and we're recent friends so i might be showing up in your feed all and that this thing got 110 comments more people commented on this post than wish me a happy birthday like that's how active this post was and one guy who i've never met but he's facebook friends with the most judgmental facebook friend i have she was my stepmother's therapist for a long time and she leaves these comments that are so rude all the time and um, for everybody to read for everybody to read yeah they're public you know and she's she's a therapist she was a therapist now she's a 90 year old woman who's just lonely and you know probably suffering from some level of dementia dementia and things like that so i just i cut her some slack because she has there's a history of her being in our family even though i think her behavior is totally inappropriate this guy is her friend. And when I looked and he wrote what he wrote, and then I was like, it, well, you have one mutual friend. And it was her. I was like, of course it's her. Like, what other friend of mine could we possibly have in common besides the person who leaves the most inappropriately judgmental stuff on my page? Right. And he said, and I, I you know, I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm tempted just to get it right. 
But he basically said, you know, please reevaluate whether or not you're someone who should have a dog. Not everybody should. Uh, and, you know, I think it would be much better if you found a loving family to take this dog. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I wrote, you know, I went off on the guy. I have never cussed anybody out on Facebook in my entire life. And I was like, fuck you. Who the fuck do you think you are? This is my page. You don't know me. You know? Right. And I went nuts on the guy. And then my last line was, I'm sorry you weren't given to a more loving family. <laughs> you should have been crated. <laughs> I, yeah. I was like, and my friends have said, Jason, the only thing you should have said was that last line, you know. Uh, but... I wouldn't I don't talk to people that way and I certainly can't imagine him having said that to me as a total stranger but see he doesn't Jason he doesn't feel like a total stranger because your friends on Facebook and because your friends on Facebook when you print it and put it on Facebook you put it out there for everybody to comment on I've got a friend that her family members turn on her for everything, and it's all over Facebook. Well, you know, those are your real family members, and they're turning on you. They're squirrely anyway. You don't need to be breaking bread with these bastards. They're cray-cray, you know? <laughs> um, but I just find it so strange with young people today, you know, and I loved it when you text me today and you go, would you mind if I called? I would love for you to call. I don't like texting. I like a human voice. Right. You know, but I know that has a lot to do. And again, I'm not using this compound with my age because I wasn't raised in the in the social media world. That's not what I did. Um, but I think you're going to have more people in therapy in the next few years than you could possibly ever imagine. It'll be the perfect time to have a psychology degree. <laughs> the perfect time. Well, I think it's interesting. My daughter, I have a nine-year-old daughter who you'll meet tonight, and uh, she hates it when I'm on Facebook. Like she has had this, and I think her generation might have a backlash against social media because her, their parents are on it all the time. Right. Because it's new for us. Like it came out, you know, basically I joined Facebook right around the time my daughter was born, but not because she was born. I joined it for my company. I started it for my business. And... It was really sort of the dawn of social marketing. It was 2008. If Facebook had been around for a while, but it wasn't marketing yet. It wasn't right. networking. It was just kind of another way to connect with people online. And before you know it, you're you're reconnecting with people from high school who you delusionally think you miss. And then, you know, oh, my God, how have you been? I haven't talked to you in 20 years. And pretty soon you realize there's a reason you haven't talked to them in 20 years. You still have nothing in common. Right. Anyway, my daughter is kind of nice to hook up. That's a positive side, you know? I mean, like, and you knew why you didn't run around with them in high school. Now, that's just, um, in, you know, reevaluated with the same outcome now that you're adults. But, you know, here's what they were in high school. You don't change too much, and I'll move on. And I agree with you. There's, like, on the one hand, the relationships haven't changed. There are other people who I really genuinely did fall away from, and miss like we were friends and so i have reconnected and even seen and spent time with and you know stayed at people's houses who i haven't seen hadn't seen since high school until now and facebook is responsible for rekindling those relationships and so it is very very positive right and and you get to say things to people 20 years later that can be really nice you know like you can say you know i just you were one of those people who i just always really 
liked or trusted or there was something different about you and you never would have known or thought to say it when you're 16 or 17. Exactly. But now that you're in your 40s and you're looking back at the people who really, in spite of everyone being a jackass in high school, some people still had an ethic around them. Mm-hmm. And to be able to kind of say that to people and, and really feel it and mean it for them to hear it, it can be really nice and healing. And we're all a little lonelier now that we're older. It's like... You know what? Facebook. Social media. Yeah. Social media. That's why you're lonelier. Because it takes a lot more effort to get up off your ass and go see somebody in person. Right. And it's a lot more difficult talking to someone in person than it is typing out a message. I agree with you. I mean, I think I think it gives this false sense of uh, intimacy and, yes. and connectedness. Like, I will, I find myself looking, you know, especially when I post something that I'm hoping gets you know, some, some traction and, you know, I'm looking to see how many likes it has or comments or whatever. And, and, and that is, uh, Louis CK calls it the forever empty. You know, it's like you're, no matter how many people have commented on it, as soon as you've read all the comments and, and seen all the likes, you're on empty again, you know, and now you got to give it some time to build up some, some followers to, to go refill that, jar with a giant you know the hole in the bucket yeah <laughs> the bucket the with the hole that you had when you, know. you signed on yeah yeah right yeah so i'm with you 100 percent. and and when i said i you know wanted to call you today it was like first of all i was getting one word answers from you and now i understand why because you hate texting but and I, I don't type as fast as you do or as your daughter would so i mean people can type out an answer split second i'm like uh duh, duh, duh. and i'm like well i'll just wait maybe they'll call you know. Yeah. Well, see, and the thing that's happened now is I don't call people because I don't want to bother them. Like calling has become intrusive and texting has become sort of passive. Like you can text people and whatever they've got going on, it's their, their ringer might be off. It's just not, they can have three text conversations going on simultaneously and you don't necessarily feel it. And it's just considered less intrusive. I don't know what you're in the middle of. So I shoot you a text. So I don't, you don't jump out of the shower to answer the phone because you think it might be important and don't know it's just me. You know, it's like... And it it being just you, it could be important. <laughs> and, you know, I tell comics and friends of mine, call me anytime. If I don't answer that phone, I will. Sooner or later, you'll get a, a call back from me because right. I'm not going to jump out of the shower and break my hip. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> so I'll take the time and I will call somebody back. Uh, and I'll text people back. But to me, texting is a waste of life. Well, certainly if it's like, if it becomes your interface with the world, then I agree with you, you know. Um, I think like anything else, it has its place. It's a, It should be a tool, not a master, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and I, you can put out a lot of fires with text messages. You can That's also, true. but you can start some that are very hard to put put out. What you type is not necessarily what you meant. Right. When you read something, it's a lot different than someone speaking it to you. Yeah. So a lot of times you have to back up and punt because, well, I didn't mean for it to come across that way. Had we talked initially, we wouldn't be having this secondary conversation. Yeah. Totally. You know. Yeah. Um, but I don't see us turning back anytime soon. You oh know? yeah, I don't, I don't see how. Understand this: when I taught at the university, computers were just coming on board. This was my prediction: 
This is a phase. It will never catch on. (laughs) (laughs) So you really don't need to plan your future with the information that I give you because I'm pretty clueless, okay? Because I thought this will never take off. Yeah, That is real. Were you Um, teaching computers? No. Oh, okay. I was teaching criminal justice at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Oh, really? Oh, fascinating. Is that where you're from, is Chattanooga? Not originally. I was born on Midway Island, formative years in California. My dad was in the Navy 23 years. We've traveled around a whole lot, but I have been in Chattanooga for years. Basically, you know, 40 40 years, 45 years. So that's home. You know, that, and and speaking of, is that my home? I love this. You got a young comic. He's been in Arkansas his whole life, all 23 years. He moves to New York or L.A. He's been there six weeks. He goes, uh, I'm from New York. I'm from L.A. <laughs> no, you're not, asshole. You're from Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody moves. I'm, I live in Asheville for 12 years. I still tell people I'm from L.A. You know, it's the opposite if you're from one of those places. Like, you don't let that identity go very quickly. So you're originally from L.A.? I'm originally from New York. So I did, you know, nine years in New York then New Mexico, Colorado, then LA for 16 years before I moved to Asheville. And I've lived in Europe and I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've been around a little bit, but not military style, just on my own or, you know, with my family. And, but you know, it's, I am, when I'm in Asheville, I feel very LA. When I'm in LA, I feel very Asheville. I just, I really don't fit in in either place, you know? And when I go to New York, I like, I always feel like, oh man, I'm home. You know, the, the moment I cross over the river uh-huh. or through the tunnel, and as soon as I can see the city, it's just this feeling of being home. But once I'm there for a while, I'm just like, man, this city moves at, at a speed that I don't understand. And these people, I, they know I'm not from here anymore. You know, even though I can talk to them and I, I can kind of bond with them because I have that deep inside me. Mm-hmm. But I always feel like I'm getting conned in New York and they just, I'm a mark. And see here, I I feel comfortable wherever I am. Now, ignorance may be bliss. I've only been to New York one time. And a friend of mine who's a very high-end interior designer, uh, I helped him move. And I was there only, I think I was there four nights, okay, at his apartment. And, you know, how much can you see in four nights when you're also unpacking and all that kind of stuff? You know, everybody was nice. I would ask where something was, and they'd want you to repeat it twice because you sound like a hillbilly. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Everybody was extremely nice. Now, they're in a hurry, but they will stop to help you. I have nothing negative in the four nights that I was there to say anything negative about New York. My formative years were spent in California. I would hate to have to live in the state of California. And I can tell you this is my theory of why it's dropping off into the ocean. Too much silicone. Yeah. And um, the people are totally oblivious to the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. It's all about looks. And, you know, they can get all the plastic surgery they want. But, you know, you shouldn't cry and wipe your eyes up here. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, So, you know, you get to know those people because my dad was in the Navy and we had Navy family. They weren't like what you're dealing with, you know, as a comic moving out there, as an entertainer moving out there, that wasn't, we were family living there. That was our home. Right. But I don't think you have to move to L.A. or New York to make it to the next level in this business. I don't think talent is geographical. It's wherever you are. 
you know, I, in the, so many ways, I feel like I have more opportunities in these smaller, I want, I don't want to use the word markets, but I'm going to for a mm -hmm. moment, you know, like in these smaller markets, I feel like I have more opportunities. I mean, I've been doing this less than a year and a half and I'm already the booker and the host at this club, you know, that's amazing. And yeah, I mean, that's unheard of. And I don't know, you, I hosted last night. And you don't have I'll to lie to this. me. How did I do? Oh, I won't lie to you. Okay. I am extremely honest. You have absolutely excellent stage presence. It's like you've been on stage all your life. You can't teach stage presence. You've either you're born with it or, you, or you're not. You can teach somebody to be funny. It's better if they're naturally funny. But you have excellent stage presence and your material is very solid. Very oh, solid. That is very generous. I appreciate that. Yep. And I wasn't fishing for a compliment as much as just wanting... I'm always interested in earnest feedback from somebody who knows and who's been around, you know, because I'm constantly writing and rewriting and worrying and obsessing. And maybe if I am coming up with good stuff, it's because of all that work, you know. And do you tape your shows? Every single show. I, I, I have never taped a show in 21 years. Really? And when I put out CDs, I'm the slowest person putting out a CD. I cannot stand to listen to myself or watch myself. Well, I don't I'm enjoy with me it all day. I, I I just I have to have a, a third party that will look at it and tell me what flies. I know when something flops, but you know I just I've never taped myself, never. Well, I do it to I do it uh, to learn from it, you know, because a lot of times when I'm performing, I'll I'm in a bubble when I'm up on stage, you know, and I'll think I'm doing great, and then I'll listen back. And I'm like. Oh, it was only okay. You know, like something that I thought killed maybe didn't do as well as I thought in that moment. And you can't hear that until you're listening back objectively and you're no longer on the stage and kind of in the moment. And and you're, uh, for me, I don't mean to use the you language, but for me, like I'm in my head, I'm doing this bit that I've either, it's either new or it's tried and true. And, and so I, I'm not necessarily fully tuned into how people are receiving it as much as I think I am in that moment. And then I go back and watch it and there'll be good things and bad things that I wasn't aware was happening. You're never going to be a hundred percent happy with what you do. You're always going to find a way that it could have been better. And remember every show is a different audience. Right. And not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody's going to think you're funny. Yeah. I, I can't handle And that. let me tell you what you'll do. <laughs> You could go to a room, you got 400 patrons in there, all wanting to see comedy. Right. They're all hysterical, but one's got their arms folded and not laughing, and that's the one you hone in on. You forget the 399, you're wondering why that one person's not laughing. Yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, I've had that experience, and I've heard enough people talk about it that I haven't lost myself to it yet, but only thank God, because I've heard people like you and Steve Martin and, you know, talk about, you know, the one guy in the room who you're just like, why don't they get it? Or why, why you know. And we never go, man, these 399 are really getting it. Yeah. I was working in um, Wisconsin. It was a fabulous room. You wouldn't have even expected to be out in the boonies like it was. And I guess there was about 425 people there. And there was a lady that she hated my show she hated me she hated the air that i was breathing so and i got a standing ovation okay i followed her out and i said and tickets were twenty dollars i said ma'am i want you to take this money 
uh, why? She said, I didn't think you were funny. And I go, I understand. And comedy's subjective. So, you know, you're not going to like me. But we don't have to like each other. I don't want you to have sat through that. Thank you for sitting through it so you did not disrupt the crowd. Take this $20, and we'll call it a day. I don't feel comfortable taking it. I said, I want you to take it. She said, that's very nice of you. And it was much easier for me to do that than gut her like a deer. <laughs> right, you mean like like from the stage and... Well, you know, yeah, like I would I would never pick on somebody that was not in tune to what I was doing. Right. I'm the brunt of every joke. And when I pick on you, it's in a good way, and you're always going to get a T-shirt and a bumper sticker and a shot glass from me. Right. You know? I don't want you to have a bad experience. I mean, you were – so last night, you were really – funny with this life coach girl mm -hmm. and then she became every she became everybody's go-to mm -hmm. <laughs> including when the show ended she was the first person out the right. door she came back i think she just really had to pee yeah but but it was pretty funny like the first thing i said when i got up on stage oh, the life coach is already out of here you know uh and she was here with a friend of mine <laughs> so uh but i mean i wasn't in the room when you started with her so how did that happen, and how did you... I mean, obviously, you never know, but something Here's must have tipped you off. and I interact with the audience a great deal. But, you know, I've always been interested in people. I'm a people watcher. Uh, a psychology degree has helped me with that. Mm. Teaching's helped me with that. I really care about what's going on in people's lives. And I'm a hugger. I hug everybody. Okay? And... I've got a cousin that goes, why do you talk to these people? I go, well, I really care what's going on. You'll never see them again. It doesn't matter. I want to hear what's going on in their life. So I'll pick out someone, and she was easy to pick out. Cute little girl, had that little hat on and a little boot. She was adorable. So after I had messed with uh, Helga, I said, well, what do you do? I'm a life coach. I don't care what your profession is. I can mess with you for the show. Right. You know, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I know a lot of people with all kinds of jobs. And you will never find me sitting in a green room while other comics are up. I am out in that audience, or and I'm paying attention. Because I want to see if you're interacting with somebody and they just blow you off. I know they're not comfortable with being you know, interacted with. Right. So I'm not going to make that same mistake. You don't have, in the position you're in, that freedom. Because you're first? the first one up. Yeah. The first one up is the hardest position. I don't care what club you're playing. You're going up to a totally cold crowd. The hardest position is being an MC. When I started in comedy, I traveled to the punchline to build up time, traveled to Zany's to build up time, and my home club to build up time. I started out as a headliner. And I didn't know how comedy worked. But I know there's also another female comic started out as a headliner, and that was Etta May. And she's out of Kentucky. But I was 47. Had I gone through those stages, I would have never reached headliner. There's no way. Because you just would have been too discouraging for you or too no, hard? No. Nobody's going to pump you up. When you become a fabulous feature, they're going to be slow about headlining you. Because now that club is getting basically two headliners. One that just hasn't been bumped yet and a seasoned headliner. Got it. You know, so that audience is getting the best of the best shows. And I've always said this, and I have comic friends that go, you shouldn't be saying this. The only difference between a really good headliner and a really solid feature that should be headlining 
is getting the bills out and able to keep the audience's attention. You know, because it's very difficult when they're putting out the bills. Right. Everybody wants to discuss, I didn't have this, I wanted more of this. And that is extremely distracting. I think that's the only difference. Interesting. Just that little edge that somebody that has that they bit don't of edge. lose. And when you see that club owner do this, because he wants you to stretch the time because they got the tickets out late, as a feature just bumping up, do you have that extra time? Right. You know? Um, comedy... I was in it for five years, and I thought, I've got this figured out. Then I was in it for five more, and I go, now I've really got it figured out. seems like in five-year increments is when I think I have it figured out. It is the strangest business I've ever been in in my entire life. And I think a sad thing is is that it's easy to get, you know, kind of crusty about things. I... I enjoy when a young comic is all about it, you know, and to see that enthusiasm. I may not be bouncing off the walls, but I have the same enthusiasm today that I did 21 years ago. And I think an audience is paying too much for drinks. They've got a babysitter, you know, and they've paid too much for food. This is their night out. So when I have a young feature at go, I'm hungover. You leave that hangover in the green room they're to get the very best show that you can possibly give them. Yeah. We owe them. And this is what I also think that a lot of comics don't realize is that we wouldn't have great shows if we didn't have great staff. Because let me tell you, if your beer's late or your food's not on time, that's what they remember, not how funny we were. You know, that waitress didn't get this. So when you've got a really good wait staff, they all need to be tipped as a headliner. You need to tip all of them. Oh, really? You tip out the staff? As, as the, the comic, staff. you tip out the staff? I, as a headliner. As a headliner. I don't expect a feature no, no, of course, at yeah. all. And I'm not telling you I can give them big tips. I'm not in that, that realm. I'm not Ralphie May or, um, uh, excuse me, okay. or um, DL. I'm not on that level. But I'll tell you this about DL. When he plays the comedy catch, he tips every staff member $100. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, you know, he makes that kind of money. Doesn't mean he has to do it. Right. He does that. And I admire that. You know, if all of a sudden I'm, I was making big bucks, I would tip my wait staff dramatically. Because without a good wait staff, there will be no funny show. That makes total sense. I remember reading some reviews about a place in Atlanta. And it was a, it was a comedy place, but none of the reviews were about the comedy. They were all about the service. Exactly. So I'd never put that together until yep. you just said it now. You know, I'm like, why? And you know, they... as a feature or an MC, I understand the money's lower. You know, I'm not making big bucks, but I understand that the money is lower. Um, so, and when I first started out, I mean, it was crazy how little money I was making. So I could only afford to give each staff member a dollar. It's like your grandmother sending you a Christmas card and it's got a dollar in it, you know? But they go, you know, Tramp, Fr get, my friends call me Tramp. Yeah, they call me Tramp. <laughs> you know, Tramp, other comics don't tip us. And I go, well, they should. But as an MC or a feature, you can't. But it didn't cost you anything to go, you were an excellent staff. You know, I'll tell you, um, when you work the funny bones, they're ninjas. You don't know that they're out there. They mm. are in and they are out. You don't see or hear them. I work some clubs where the waitress is talking to him and going, so you want more ice than that? She becomes a heckler just talking to the individual. Right. That's a lack of training from that club owner. Right. Yeah, I know. There's 
there are places who just don't realize i mean a lot of times especially now with all these alt rooms you know you have people who are they're serving during a comedy show but they're not used to being comedy show servers right and so they don't have any sense of that etiquette and there's some people who just get it mm-hmm. and some people who don't you know we went to denny's last night which is the first time i've gone to denny's since my high school prom and <laughs> and with good reason and uh but our server uh, as i said i and this i as i posted on facebook all the food was brown and our server's name was red <laughs> And she was just, she was flow out of Alice, uh-huh. you know? I mean, she just was like, and she took all her orders. There were 10 of us. She took 10 orders without writing a single thing down. That's amazing. It was, I was like, fuck it. I'm getting eggs instead of a burger, you know? It's I, like, I could never do that. I could never do it. And she got it all right. And she didn't just get it right. She came back and asked specific questions to each person. She's like, now you said this, this, now did you want raw onions because you got grilled onions? I'm like, you know, no, thank you. I, not only is she remembering it, but she's also thinking about what we want. Right. You know, and what would make sense. I just, I seldom have that level of service at any restaurant. I've certainly never had it at a Denny's. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the guys this was like, dude, you know, she's working the graveyard shift. I'm like, she obviously wants to work the graveyard shift because someone right. like this could be working anywhere. And... She wants to be a good waitress. Yeah. Yeah, she loves it. She loves, somehow she loves what she does. And that's great. Yeah. Because we all, we all have things that we enjoy doing, and thank goodness we all enjoy doing different things. Here's what I have found in the comedy world, and I'm not even close to having the experience that those before me had, you know, or that started the same time I did and certainly progressed. Here's what I tell every comedian. When you open for me, your career is going to go through the ceiling. (laughs) I'm not, but your career is going to go through the ceiling. But every comic, that's wrong. That's totally incorrect. So many comics I work with now will tell you in a heartbeat, I'm a genius. No, motherfucker, you're not a genius. Genius is a separate group, okay? And it's not the run of the mill. Um, You're not a genius, What's wrong with just having common sense, which nobody has today? But everybody wants to be a genius, and that baffles me. True, I'd rather have a kid that has enough sense to get out of the rain than one that can explain it and be soaking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's the participation trophy syndrome, you know. You know, Spanky spoke of that last night. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's like it's there's. There's something about, and my daughter resents it. She's like, I didn't win. Why am I getting a trophy? You know, and then when she does get something that she actually earned. Right. You know, sometimes she'll really appreciate it. You can see the smile on her face. Like, and other times she can't tell the difference, you know, between this but and But look at that question. Else. How insightful that question is. Why am I getting a trophy when I didn't win? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My daughter's sharp, man. She's, now that we're friends on Facebook and when you got nothing to do, go back and listen and read. You can do a search on my Facebook page okay. for Sula Said. My daughter's name is Sula, S-U-L-A, and then Said, S-A-I-D. I've never heard so of the name Sula. It's very unusual. My grandmother's name was Sulamith, and so uh, she died while my daughter's mother was pregnant. And in Judaism, you don't name a child after a living relative, but if possible, you name them in honor of the most recently deceased relative. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so my... 
cousin's wife was pregnant exactly the same time. They had a son five days before we had Sula. We knew we were having a girl. They didn't know what they were having. And if they had a girl, they were also going to name her Sula. And so then we were like, fuck, you know, and it's a little weird having two kids in the same family with exactly the same name. So we thought, well, maybe we'll call her by a middle name or whatever. Fortunately, they had a boy. Problem solved. Perfect. But I have this series on my Facebook page called Sula Said. And they're my conversations with her. And that's cute. Oh, I they're, like that. oh, yeah. They're dating back to when she's three years old and putting me in my place from the get go. You know, I'm always the straight man in these conversations. And she always gets the laugh every single time. And and deservedly so. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth posting. I mean, but these Sula Seds are many people's favorite things about my Facebook page. And I'm just a vehicle for them to have some time with my daughter. Uh, and she's going to come tonight. And if she's up for it, I'm going to let her tell a joke at the end of the night. Cause That'd she's, be great. Yeah, she's really cute. And she tells this one joke that's very, very funny. And uh, and I've, I've had her perform. This will be the third time she's performing. And, and I'm trying to groom her to do this. I don't know. Most people wouldn't want their kids to be stand-up comedians. But I don't really care if she does it or not. But I think if she has the skill of standing up in front of a room and making them laugh and understanding that, and I can... I can give her the opportunity to, to develop that at a young age. That's going to help her no matter what she does. Oh, sure. So, and it's fun as hell. I mean, she's just, she's so freaking cute. Upstage is me the entire time she's up there. Is that's cute. her job. Yeah, that is. <laughs> she, she does it on and off the stage. <clears throat> so how did you end up moving from being a professor to being a comedian? I was not a professor. I was an instructor. I have a master's degree. I don't have a doctorate degree. Okay, fair so enough. So professor, okay. you know, goes with doctorate. Right. Um, I was going through a really bad divorce. Now, here's how illiterate I was when it came to the field of comedy. I had never been to a comedy club to see comics. I'd watch things on TV, you know. I saw Phyllis Diller in person in California, wow. you know. Um, I loved Joan Rivers, but I was never like, oh, I'd like to do that. I never had that dream. And uh, so I went through this divorce, and I called Michael Alfano, who's on the Comedy Catch for 30 years, and I said, I'd like to do a show. And he goes, well, who are you? I said, Janet Williams. Because when I started out, I didn't really have, I didn't know who I was or what I was going to portray on stage. And because um, I was not the Tennessee tramp, I didn't know, you know, what I was going to wear on stage. And he goes, well, how long have you been doing comedy? I said, this is my first show. And he's <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that. And I go, really? He goes, you have to take a comedy class. And it was an eight-week-long comedy catch, uh, comedy class. And it was developed by Kenny Sons and Les McCurdy. They're both in Sarasota now, but they actually started the comedy catch, and now they got McCurdy's in Sarasota. And uh, it's called the Bermuda Maverick Comedy School. And Steve Plemons, a local comic, taught the class. I think there were eight of us in there. I was the only female. Mm. So when the media, you know, our little local news stuff did the story, why not go to the female? She's the one that stands out. Right. They're all males. This is what I was quoted as saying in the Chattanooga Times. Miss Williams, where do you see yourself five years from now? I said, in two years, I'll have an HBO special. <laughs> I can't even spell HBO, okay? That's how uninformed and illiterate I was when it came to comedy. But I got up on stage. You know, we all think we have a really good set. Oh, I've got 15 minutes. It turns out you actually have three. Right. But by teaching on a university level, that was stage time for me. Right. Okay? And um, 
I was just bit by the bug and it went from there. That's cool. So have you had your HBO special now? Hell no. <laughs> I was the first white female to be on BET, BET Comic View for three seasons. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I love your line about uh, Monica Lewinsky. She gives one blowjob. She gets a TV show. I've given hundreds. I can't even get a commercial. <laughs> I thought that, that was so fantastic. True. That is so true. <laughs> but um, I have no regrets being in this business. None. But I will tell you this. The road is for a younger comic. And I realized that. So now that I'm in my very late 60s, I try to get a feature act that I've met on the road and I'll go, do you want to open for me at such and such? That's the best way you can help a comic is that bring them, get them in a club that's going to take them years to get into. I'm not the comedy police, but I'm bad in a thousand right now because I will talk to Michael and go, this kid opened for me. He is funny. I'm going to bring him in. I, I work my home club twice a year invariably he's brought that person back on their own nice i go you know you don't have to open for me michael's got you know 50 51 other weeks um and there's a guy odyssey michaels he's from um columbus ohio i think and i brought him in to open for me and i think he is just one of the nicest guys and very funny and he's kind of gotten out of comedy now but michael goes he and his wife at that time they're at that club every single night and they said what a refreshing comedian he is mm. i brought dan swart out in there and then amy dingler's a comic out of bureau beach and anytime i can take her on the road with me i take her on the road here's the deal i will always pick someone younger because they can carry my luggage and it's like well my granny's about the same age as you so I don't have to lug a lot of luggage. And they really look out for me. Right. You know, and I appreciate that. And if you want to treat me like I'm 90, I don't have a problem with that either. You know, <laughs> uh, Jerry Harvey, I take on the road with me. He's a local comic, very funny guy. But people have a tendency, you know, when, I, when I'm going to a door, if there's a, a lady older than myself or I get there first, it's just human nature. You open the door for that person. Right. But I have comics that'll set up my merchandise, carry it to the car for me, all that kind of stuff. And that's really, really nice. Right. And invariably they'll go, you know, Tramp, I could have never gotten this room this soon if it hadn't been for you. That's your job as an older comic to help those that are coming up where you used to be. Right. I think a lot of that has to do with being an educator as well. Yeah, you're just used to mentoring people. Yes. and looking out for them yeah i mean spanky's been great to me he you know i first time i met him he invited me to host in charlotte at the comedy zone and uh the owner of the comedy zone was there that night i'm not sure that i you know put on my best set but uh whatever stage presence i have that doesn't that's there regardless of how well i'm my material is going over uh and and we had mic problems it was like it was a pretty i've watched that set and been like oh yeah that was filled with problems and it was one of those times where i didn't know how good or bad it was going while I was in it until I watched it. I watched myself get caught off track by the audience. You know, I let them suck me out of my joke and into some interaction at the wrong moments. You know, those are right. the kinds of things that I, for me, I can only learn them by going back and watching. Uh, but anyway, you know, he was great. He, he let me come do that. And then, um, and then I haven't really seen him since we've talked on the phone and stuff. And then after last night, he said, I'm going to bring you down to Rock Hill, this room I have, you know, and have you do 20, 30 minutes, you know. So that's 
that's real time for yeah it is you know it is real time and uh so it's nice i feel like i'm developing relationships with you know people like spanky and here's the deal about spanky i said this from the day that i first saw his act you think you're in spanky's living room totally 100 percent. we might as all might as well all be laying on sofas and eating popcorn Spanky Brown is the only way you really know if he's breathing on stage is to put a mirror under his nose. <laughs> you feel so comfortable, and you're, he's just talking to you. He's not putting on a show. That's the feeling that you get. Right. He really is. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, definitely putting on a show, but he is so relaxed. I think, I think Spanky Brown is an excellent comic. You know, people come up to me and go, you know, you just keep doing this. You're going to make it. And I go, did I make you laugh tonight? <laughs> yeah. Well, then I've made it. You know, not everybody gets a Comedy Central special. Not everybody's going to be Kevin Hart. Now, not Amy. everybody can be Kevin Hart. I was just having this conversation with someone in a different context. You know, it's like, you there's just not enough room at the top for everyone. No, there's, there's only not. one president. Mm -mm. There's not two presidents. There's only one prime minister. You know, it's like, there's one president, there's one vice president, there's a bunch of senators, and then there's even more representatives and there's more governors and mayors well my governors is only 50 but there's mayors you know it's like as you move down the ranks there's room for plenty of people you know at the world series of poker there's a final table but there's only one person who wins here's the deal if you can make a living doing this business you're in the upper echelon as far as entertainment mm. think of how many thousands of comics there are right you know you're on a circuit. You get to know some of them. They're on cruise ships. You know, they do corporate stuff. They're on college circuits. They're club comics. You know, there's just so many avenues you can go into as a comic. So there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comics. If you can make a living doing this, you've risen to the top. You may not have, you may not be making Kevin Hart money, but you've still risen to the top because you're making a living. You know, I, I've watched and listened to Kevin Hart. I, I didn't watch his movie that he just came out with, but I've been listening to him a lot. And it's like he can't do the kind of material that made him famous, you know, because it's too big. He's playing an arena now. It's like it has to, his act has to be big. It has to match the size of the room. That's what it feels like to me. You know, and when I listen to these guys really old stuff, because a lot of times I'll see these people who are huge now. I'm like, why are they so famous? Like, I don't really enjoy them. They're not making me think. Right. But then to go back and listen to their early stuff when they were like me, you know, doing thrilled to do five minutes somewhere. Right. You know, you're like, oh, man, they 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 really did have something, you know. I have three things on my bucket list. I've traveled everywhere. I want to meet Will Ferrell. I think Will Ferrell is absolutely hysterical. He is hysterical. Okay. I want to meet Kevin Hart, and I want to just dance a short time, and I wear braces on my legs with Bruno Mars. Oh. That's the three people I want to meet. I don't blame you. Yeah. That's you a know, good list. You know, I don't care about meeting the Pope. Fuck the Pope. I don't care about meeting with the Pope or, <laughs> or any evangelist on TV. None of that. They do give me lots of comedic material. Okay. So a thank but, you note, but you don't need to meet them. <laughs> right. Right. But I would love to meet those three guys. So what's your affinity for Kevin Hart? What's What do you love about him? Here's the thing. 
Ralphie May pointed this out to me, and so did Les McCurdy. I still talk fast on stage, but I used to talk a lot faster. And Ralphie said, Sugar, you're giving them a three-hour show in 45 or 50 minutes. Mm. You're not draining your material. You know, Ralphie will get up. If you'll notice a Ralphie May, he gets up and maybe talks about five subjects and may be on stage for two hours. Right. Five subjects. I'm bam, bam, bam. I'm all over the place. So, and what's difficult for a comedian is to not have constant laughter. And as long as that audience is not talking among themselves, you've still got their attention. Yeah. Comics get very nervous when you don't hear laughter. And I think Spanky's cornered the market on that because they'll get the laugh and then he'll just kind of stand around, regroup, and head out. My fascination with Kevin Hart is how he talks about things that when he talks about them, I'm like, I should have thought about that. You know, one of his specials, he was talking about he saw a raccoon next to a swimming pool. And he goes, you know, I went out there, I was scared. And I came back and told my wife, I said, oh, there's a raccoon out there. He's very scary. He has two guns. He shot a gun at me. I mean, you're like, who would even think of saying something like that? Right. You know, I just, I like his creativity and it's at every single level. Mm. I am totally fascinated with Kevin Hart. All right. Well, uh, you know, because but of I your am saying Dave Chappelle that, as well. Yeah. I'll, I, yeah. Yeah. I love Chappelle. And I love Dave Chappelle walking away from $55 million because he was like, you're not going to put restraints on me. And, you know, a lot of comics will say, you know, you, you seldom have a woman open for you. I love female comics. Love them. I am one. I don't want a woman opening for me. We cross over on material. Right. And, you know, I've had interviewers go, well, you know, like, I just don't think female comics are funny. And I go, if I had a dollar for every time that somebody said, you know, I normally don't like female comics, but you were really funny. You know, I think it's more difficult for a young, pretty female comic because I've watched them. They'll take the stage. They'll say something. The husband or boyfriend will laugh. The girlfriend or wife will go, you think she's funny? And what she's wanting to say is, so you want to fuck her? Right. No, I just thought she was funny. And then he'll go, no, I don't think she's funny. She has to lower herself to get the attention of that female. And once she wins her over, they can both laugh. Right. But he has to wait for that female's approval for him to laugh. I'm non-threatening. You know, I started out at 47. I was never the homecoming queen. So, I mean, I have never been threatening on that le level with young females that are, are very attractive. Yeah, I think it's. I think there's a few challenges that they have. You know, it's... Uh, I mean, they're so used to being uh prized for their looks you know the and and it's the world interacts with them that way first i think for all women that i think that happens hey, positive let me tell you, and men negative. and women if you're attractive you're going to be noticed and you're going to be given chances that the average person is not that is a fact that is absolutely a fact and studies been done on it if you're a tall man you will make it further in business Overall, there's exceptions to every rule than a short man. Hmm. That makes sense. I mean, it's just part of the whole alpha, mm -hmm. the alpha ladder, you know. 
Right. I remember when uh, Julie Scoggins was here. Are you friendly with her? Oh, Julie Scoggins and I've been friends since we both got in comedy. Yeah, I would. I would imagine you guys would would yeah. get along. And uh, we had our feature drop out, and so I brought in a guy named Brandon Rainwater. I don't know if you know him. He's a young. I do not. No, he's a young comic. I mean, he's you know he's like me. We're we're um, colleagues, you know. And uh, but I brought in Brandon because he's very funny and. I just knew he would do well at this theater. He's African-American, but he's relatively clean. And he's just funny, you know, and, and animated. And Julie loved him so much. She And he'd opened for her once before, but she'd forgotten about him because you guys meet hundreds of people oh, like yeah. us, you know. And, and uh, she's like, I forgot about Brandon. I'm going to get his number. I'm going to, I think I'm just going to tote him along with me a little bit. And her reasoning, apart from the fact that he's good, was that there's zero crossover. You know, he's great at warming right. up the room, but a young black male comic is not going to be telling the same jokes as Julie Scoggins. Exactly. And that was like, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So, you know, because in my mind, I've been told I look like Louis C.K. on stage, that I have his, de- not necessarily as a compliment, you know, but uh, but that I have his demeanor in some ways. You kind of do look like him. Yeah, I know. I, I'm hopefully a better looking version, but... Uh, I think he's know. adorable. He, he He's phenomenal. I mean, I don't have his twinkle. You know, he's got this twinkle in his eye when he knows he's about to say something horrible. But then he does it in a way that's somehow Did you see him totally on okay. Live over the almond joy and pedophiles. Yes. Oh my God. Huh. I just watched that the other day. I was like, that... how did he do that on television and make it okay? And hysterical. Oh, totally hysterical. Are you kidding? No. I mean, it, it it was. And at the end, he's like, "All right, we got through it." You know, he even acknowledged like right. he knew that that was touch and go. You know. And then the next time he he got up, he talked about racism. He's like, "I was brought up in the seventies. I'm I'm a little bit racist. You know, we all are. Like, you know, if I see four black women owning a pizza restaurant, I'm gonna notice that. You know, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I just I just think he's so incredible. He first right now he is just fully in his grace. I mean, you can see it. Everything he does is gold. Everyone surrounding him really respects him." So they bring their best to him. So everything he does is just coming out roses right now, and 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 deservedly so. Man, that guy has worked his he has worked ass very off. very hard. Yeah. So there's not a piece of me that that I don't feel any envy. I just feel respect. I don't feel envy for any comic that makes it. And I'll tell you why. Have you heard of the well-read comedy tour? No. Trey Crowder. Oh, I know who he is. Yeah. You know who Trey Crowder Yeah, is? yeah. I haven't seen him. I missed him in Asheville, but I know who he is. Okay. He's killing it right now. Oh, my God. He and Corey Forrester, and I can't think of Drew's last name. They had been, all three of them have opened for me before. Mm. Trey Crowder is an unbelievable writer, and he posts something on YouTube, and it got millions of hits. MSNBC contacted him. Uh, the, um, I think it was the New York Post. He does an editorial for them. Mm. They've got a sitcom that's coming out, and they've already written a book. Wow. It's on the number one best-selling list. Um, Trey Crowder is... The other two comics are great, too. And Corey, I really know on a personal level and love him. But uh, Trey Crowder is so well-written. I mean, he just... He can say it in just a capsule... And uh, and they're very left wing, um, 
I think that's fine. You know, I don't get involved in politics because it divides the audience. Right. Um, but, you know, like uh, we were talking about um, C.K. Lewis, we were talking about him and that four black women in a pizza place. It stands out. That should be on everybody's mind. You know what I mean? Right. But we're so politically correct now. There's not jack shit that you can say. There's nothing you can say. But let me tell you what comes with age. You don't give a fuck who <laughs> thinks anything negative or positive about what you say. You're entitled to your opinion. If it comes across racist, maybe partly it is racist. Maybe it's full-blown rebel flag racist. I don't know. But you have every right to say whatever you want. And, you know, everybody just wants to join hands and sing Kumbaya. Here's how the world works. You know, we're concerned about Russia, North Korea. Somebody's got to be number one. We're never all going to get along. It's not going to happen. That's not how the world is set up. We're never all going to get along. And so somebody's got to be number one. And in order to be number one, you have to kill other people. I'm not in favor of mass murder (laughs) by by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, war and the winning of wars moves you up the ladder. Is it a good thing? It's what moves you up the ladder. Right. It's not a pretty thing. Mm Mm-mm. But it's a it's a necessary thing. Right. It's it's interesting you bring up this thing about uh, as you get older, you feel like you can and should be able to say whatever you want. I have a joke that I don't do very often, um, but I talk about how I feel like my my family is what I call parenthetically racist uh, because my mother will say things like she's very happy she's living in San Francisco with her black husband, and my father will say he's a fucking Indian. They're all like that. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, uh, so your mother has a black husband. No, no, no. My mother will say of someone else. Oh, she's very happy. She's living in San Francisco. She'll describe someone. Okay. So maybe I didn't make the joke clear enough. That's good information. I'll ask after a childhood friend and my mom will say, she's very happy. She's living in San Francisco with her black husband. Like she has to mention that the husband's black. So I'm calling that parenthetically racist. Right. And. And then, you know, my father, I'm I'm pretending is parenthetically racist, but he's just racist, you know, and... How old is your father? He's 75. And where did he grow up? He grew up in New York. Did he? I mean, he's not... The thing about my dad is he doesn't think he is racist, or he, for his whole life, I mean, I'm, I'm brought up that racism is not at all okay, you know? Right. Uh, the woman who essentially raised my father was black. Uh, she, you know, was the... I don't like to use the word, but she was the maid, you know, um, but she was much more than that. I mean, in my life, she was my aunt and she died in living with our family. I mean, she was with our family until she died at 87 or something like that. Uh, she was always part of the family. But when she came into the family, you know, she was a 16 year old, illiterate, young black girl who didn't have other options. And we were a Jewish family with a doctor and where they were, you know, my grandparents and they needed someone to help raise the kids. And so Lizzie, or as I called her, Lulu, you know, she, that was her job. And she raised my father and, and my uncle and, and uh, not instead of their parents, but very, very much in the house right. all the time. There's great stories of her taking my father to the bar when he was eight and putting him on the piano and getting him to sing so the men would buy her drinks. 
you know. And I mean, can you imagine now if the right. nanny took the kid to a bar to get so, you know, the kid could help her get drunk for free with uh, no fucking way. Right. She'd be in jail. <laughs> she certainly wouldn't have a job and she definitely wouldn't be considered family. Right. And and, you know, I mean, this is a woman. I tell you about this, you know, just to show like I was brought up truly colorblind like I didn't know that it meant anything that she was black she was a part of my life an intimate part of my life from you know in the womb and uh you know when I and I was still very close to her up until the time that she died it was it was a very hard loss for all of us and uh but she said things like uh you know I said how's it I would be like how's it going she's like ah you know your uncle's living with me now because my my father's brother who died a couple of years ago he he kind of never he's sort of a failure to launch guy you know mm-hmm. great ideas just never really made it and just whatever and uh so at one point as a 50 or 60 year old man he was living on her couch and she was 70 you know i mean it was like totally awful for her and and they were in a tenement in new york i mean nothing about it was good and and I was like, how's it going? She's like, oh, I can't get laid anymore, you know? And she's 70 years old saying yeah, this, right? Yeah, I love this. And she's like, you know, your uncle, he's sleeping on my couch, you know? And, and if I do have sex, you know, the men, they they have to get a hotel room. So they can't leave money on the dresser anymore. <laughs> you know, they have, they have to spend it all in the hotel. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I said, well, I mean... Are you still seeing this one guy? She had this one boyfriend, you know, off and on for, he was just always kind of in her life, you know, and I I wish I remember his name. It was a very classic, that generation black name. And, and, uh, I said, are you still seeing him? And, uh, she said, I see him every once in a while. And I said, how tall is that guy? And she said, six feet, 12 inches. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. I love that answer. I know. I love that answer. I was just like... Holy shit, you know, this is 70-year-old black woman still talking about dick like she's 20 and getting it on the regular, you know? Well, and you know, our audience last night had a lot of silver heads. Yeah, oh yeah. In the audience. Yeah. Henderson and I always Bowl. tell young comics, don't judge hair color. You did not invent sex. We've all done it before you. That's how you, you got know? here, yeah. Your grandfather, you know, it may have been in a wool sock, quite different from your cotton sock, but he jerked off on the same sock to some degree, okay? (laughs) So you didn't invent anything, and don't misjudge your audience. They can laugh. That audience was so into all four of us last night. Yeah. And all four of us were so different from the one before. Um, You know, the, the thing about my brother lived in Minneapolis. He just moved back south. He's five minutes from me now. Um. But he would be like, you know, Southerners are fat. I go, how can you say that? People in Minneapolis are fat, too. And he goes, and there's more racist people in the South. So, of course, I get on the Internet to look it up. And there's more fat people in the South and more racist people in the South. Hmm. Um, but I'm always, I'm always glad to hear a New Yorker that's racist. Because <laughs> somehow it's it kind of calms the nerves of all the Southerners that are entitled are titled actually as racist you know i don't know i was watching steve harvey who i absolutely love i was watching his show and i can't remember the singer it was a black gentleman and they were talking about racism and this singer says and his very famous singer i just don't remember his name 
he said, I don't, his wife is white. And he goes, when somebody comes up and goes, I love mixed children, they're the prettiest. He goes, I think that's very racist. I say that all the time. I think mixed children are the prettiest. Their skin's prettier. Their hair's prettier. Did I ever view that as a racist comment? No, I still don't view it as a racist comment. But if you're going to take that as a racist comment, you know, I know on The View they were talking, why do they have to say it was a black man that held up the bank? Well, what are you going to say? A human being held up this bank. You can't say he's crippled because now you're fucking with crippled people. Right. You can't give his race so it comes at, hey, we've been robbed. Uh, could you give us a description? They were breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Not that they walked with a limp or white. They were just breathing. Good luck on finding that son of a bitch. You have got, I'm telling you, profiling has existed since the beginning of time. My background is in criminal justice. You will always have profiling or you will not solve crimes. It's impossible. Right. I got, I got, I had for the first time, I had a run in with the law the other night. Congratulations. You didn't get that first one out of the way. It wasn't even the, the law. I was a security guard. I was at a, I was coming home from comedy like, you know, midnight or one or something yeah. like that. It's pretty late. And I'd stopped to get gas and I went in the store and I was really hungry and it's all shitty food and I try not to eat shitty food. And I found a sandwich that, you know, the only problem was it had, it had gluten, but I'm like, fuck it, I'm eating it. You know, it's, it's not a hot dog, but it doesn't have anything on it. So I had to go put, so I bought it and then I went behind the hot dog stand, which is where they have the mayo and the mustard right. and all this stuff. And I took a while and I dressed my sandwich. And then I walked out. It was funny. When I walked out, I walked past the chips. And in my mind, I was like, oh, I should grab some chips. And I realized, oh, wait a minute, this isn't my house. I can't just grab chips on my way out the door. Right. That's illegal. So I kept walking. I get in my car and the security guard ambles over to my car and comes to my window. And uh, I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, uh, you know, I saw you walk out of there with a sandwich, but I didn't see you pay for it. And I said, I did pay for it, you know. I bought it at the counter. And he said, what were you doing over the, the hot dog stand for such a long time? I was like, putting mayonnaise and mustard on my sandwich. And I took the sandwich, I was like, mayonnaise, okay? And uh, he's like, so you're saying you didn't take anything else while you were over there? I'm like, that's what I'm telling you, man. You want to search me or my car? You know? All I did was get mayonnaise from a sandwich, you know, for a sandwich. And um, he's like, we were over there for a really long time. I'm like, how many times are you going to ask me this question? He's like, you don't ask me the questions. I ask you the questions. I'm just like. We're talking dude. about mayonnaise. You know, and uh, well, the thing is I was out of view of the counter. Right. So they thought I was up to, you know what? If you think I'm up to something, come look. Right. Don't wait till I get outside and then accuse me. You know, that's ridiculous. Then you're just looking for an opportunity to arrest somebody, mm -hmm. you know, and. And I was just blown away. Like, that's never happened to me. And I would like dress nicely, you know, and uh, and I said, I'm an honest guy. I'm the guy who brought in a credit card that he found on the toilet and said somebody left this in the bathroom. I'm not the guy who steals right. from a convenience store. Like I just did that. He's like, well, that's what you should have done. I'm like, yeah. Uh, uh, and that's what I did do, asshole. You know, anyway, he's like, well, look, I don't profile people. Black, white, old, young, thin, fat. If I think you're up to something, I'm going to tell you. You know, and that's what I'm doing here. I was like, well, then I appreciate you doing your job. I said, are we cool? 
He's and he just still I, telling you he still doesn't believe me. You know, I mean, we don't know each other, but I can tell you he still thinks I stole something from God knows what. Like it's all free over there, right? You know, uh, so that was my first experience of not being racially profiled and being accused at the same time. Right. Uh, anyway, I thought it was sort of you know ironic on the heels of racial profiling. I mean. And, you know, it's, you know, it is proven that people will take their, women will take their purses and hold them closer to them if they are approaching a black man or he's coming up behind them. Right. I mean, remember Jesse Jackson said he hated walking through a black neighborhood. He didn't feel safe. Right. Really, Jesse. Um, So I think you're always going to have, I look at it like this. If you have been raped by an Oriental man and you're a white woman, I don't really picture you eating in a lot of Asian restaurants because there's always going to be that fucked up thing in your mind. You know what I mean? Right. So I think we bring in things that happened to us in the past. And if you come from a really racial, you know, um, redneck background and you've heard that all your life... Or if you come from a black background and your grandmother or mother is constantly talking how bad about rednecks are, you're just going to automatically, you're not going to make that assumption on your own. It's already implanted. Right. So what you do in the latter course of your life is realize, well, that's not necessarily the truth. You know, my personal experience has shown otherwise, but you had to go through that transition to get to that point. Yeah, I think, I, you know, we there's trauma, which is what you're talking about with right. the rape incident. And it's very, very hard to heal from real trauma. And, and then there's culturally, uh, Im, you know, imbued racism. Like you're talking about, you know, growing up in a redneck family and your family just always refers to black people in a way that's socially unacceptable or less mm-hmm. accepted or obviously has issues i don't even want to say use i don't even want to use the phrase the n-word because louis ck is in my head like now you're making me say it you know but uh it's i i mean i don't think that that kind of thing is okay like i don't think conditioning your your children to be racist is is an okay thing uh i think if you're dealing with trauma that's a that's a real thing i mean i know like i said i was you know, I was just brought up. I I wasn't brought up to be colorblind. I just was colorblind because I had black well, people who were an intimate part and, of my and life. And you were in uh, New York. It's a melting pot, right? You know, it's you true, got yeah. every Although, single. I wasn't in the city. There. I was in the. I was out in the. I was born in the city, but I was out in uh, in Westchester, which is pretty white. Um, I mean, there's there's all kinds of people around, but not like living in the city where you know there's more. Eth- there's more, you know, diversity on a single subway car than there right. was in the town I lived in, you know. Uh, but in spite, so in spite of having grown up, I'm using the phrase colorblind, which in and of itself has its issues. But let's just pretend it's positive for the moment. Um, when I was 16, I got jumped in an alley in Boston, and I got sucker punched by a black guy who was part of a gang, you know. And I was with three guys who were biracial. Or maybe, maybe there were two of them. But, I, you know, they were fine because they were 
black and white mixed. And they were black enough to be okay. I, w- I later found out they had walked me through a place called Suicide Alley at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday. Like, that was dumb. Right. I didn't know. I was friends with these guys. We all were, our parents were artists. We're in an artist building. Uh, but, you know, it was in a really, really, really bad part of Austin. It was the so- it was the South End, which is now super ritzy and cool. But back then it was dangerous as fuck. And you did not walk around at 10 o'clock at night alone as a white kid, you know, unless you were of the streets, which right. I was not. Well, you know, the schools were integrated when I started the 10th grade. I was going to Ringo High School. Um, my dad retired out of the Navy. We got uh, a farm. And I rode a school bus, which I absolutely love riding the school bus. The schools were integrated in the 10th grade. And Ringo, Georgia was not known for having their finger on the pulse of the gay community or being extremely liberal, okay? Um, when the schools were integrated, the county health nurse called my mother and said, "Miss Williams, I think you need to know. I drove a Rambler. The steering wheel was this big. She said, I think you need to know that Janet has four Negroes in the car with her. <laughs> and my mother said, I'm shocked. She's not that good a driver. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when you're a military family, everybody's together. Sure. You know, I mean, like, we we didn't grow up racist as those that stayed in the same city. Right. You know, Uh, and I think when you find people that don't get out and travel, I don't think you even have to read books. If you can travel... And meet people from other backgrounds. It's the best education you could ever have. I totally agree. I've lived all, I mean, I've traveled, I don't say all over the world, but I've traveled extensively in South America, all over Europe. I hitchhiked through Turkey 20 years ago, back when that was something you could survive. Right. I wouldn't recommend it now. No, but, not you a know, good idea. But uh, I did it when I was 23. I literally hitchhiked the circumference of the entire country, you know. And I never had a single problem. I had moments of of concern but mostly they were due to just insane drivers not Mm -hmm. that i was gonna be kidnapped you know the only time i actually had some concern was when we got stopped at an army checkpoint and the guys who were in the army said you know why are you in this truck and it's like well we're hitchhiking he's giving us a ride he said well we'll give you a ride you know it's like that's okay i think i'll stay with the trucker you know and I had to talk my way out of that because those guys wanted to pull me and my friend out of that truck and take us into their custody. And okay. I was not going to be going with Turkish military. It might have been fine, but I, I had already been in the truck for several hours. You got sixth sense. Yeah. You know, and we all got a sixth sense. Sometimes we override the sixth sense, which was telling us you don't need to be going that way. Yeah. There, I, there was no way I was doing that. You know, I was just like, I'd, I'd, I'd already been in the truck for hours and didn't feel like I was going to have a problem with this person. I wasn't <laughs> going to add a new variable. But uh, anyway, so what I, I remember, you know, nothing for me, we just, you know, nothing opens your mind like seeing that people live differently and they're still okay. Right. You know, it's like I get excited just to see that people use different kinds of salt and pepper shakers in a different re- country, you know, like yep. look at how differently they do it. And, and, I didn't realize that until I really lived somewhere else. I and, my, and that was when I was, you know, in college. I went to Ecuador for six months. And the minute, this is the first time, I grew up in Santa Fe. So after New York, I went to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So as a white kid, I was a minority. And the Hispanics, and they do, 
refer to themselves as Hispanics, not Mexican or not right. Latino, because they're actually from Spain. Uh, they do not like the white people at all. And so I was a minority in a really hostile environment. Like the Hispanic kids were very, very aggressively hostile towards people like me. And I had more incidences in Santa Fe than I ever had in New York or any place I've lived. I just had that one time in Boston that was bad. And I remember, um, now I'm forgetting why I was telling you this. Oh, when I was in Ecuador, uh, I walked out of my hotel with like a tie dye and a fanny pack. And I looked as, I mean, I looked as much not of Ecuador as I possibly could. This pickup truck drove by. This kid pops out of the pickup truck with a water balloon, throws it, hits me right in the chest, you know, pretty hard, uh-huh. soaks me. And I'm with two women. And uh, they, they all, there were like several people in the back of the truck. They threw water balloons at all of us. And one of the women was like, oh, yeah, no, I heard this is like some holiday where they throw water on everybody. <laughs> I'm like, fuck that. We're white. They hate us, uh-huh. you know. Turned out I was wrong. It was this holiday and they really do throw water on everybody. And it was just not racist at all, you know, but it was just this moment. And that was, I'm telling you, that was the first 20 feet outside my hotel on my first time I saw daylight in Ecuador. I was like, I'm here for six months. I've just landed in hell. Uh That's what I thought was, you know, I was heading into. Oh my God, that was funny. Uh, I loved finding out how wrong I was, you know, because I had a great time in Ecuador. But, But based on my experience in Santa Fe, and having been, you know, on the victim end of those kinds of things all the time, I just assumed I was fucked. And uh, and that I, you know, I, truly out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, but the people in Ecuador couldn't have been nicer. And and my family that I lived with there, because it was an exchange program, uh-huh. they sent their son on an exchange program to the U.S. So they took me in. Because they wanted to give back the way they knew someone was doing for their kid. Like usually in a country like that, people take on students like us because it's extra money. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys took the money, but they didn't need it. They were a wealthy Ecuadorian family. They owned a sugar plantation. Like sugar is the next most profitable thing to cocaine in South America. So these guys had plenty of cash. They did it purely uh, as an act of generosity and curiosity and they were so nice to me they really treated me like their own son and I was awful you know I didn't mean to be but I was terrible you know I was messed my girlfriend and you know just couldn't it took me a long time to integrate by the time I realized how great they were they had you know it was time to go and they they never really lost patience with me but I think they'd lost a little bit of enthusiasm they're like oh we 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 put in an effort for a really long time uh but you know, I just, that changed me forever, that experience. You know, living in another country, realizing there's not just one way of doing things. Right. Not, and not even necessarily the best way of doing things. You know, and I have, I have a yoga product that I created and, and it's now made in America. And the people who make it are really, really salt of the earth people. But they, mo- most of them haven't left their town or the state and they certainly haven't spent much time outside of the country you know and they're very patriotic and they own guns and they're religious and 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 we don't talk about any of that stuff at the factory but we always go to lunch and that's where we're allowed to talk about anything we want 
I don't want to say anything disparaging about these guys because I really love them. They've been really good to me, and they are—they continue to be really good to me. So I don't mean it in that way, but they're underexposed to the world. You know, they think global warming is a lie, and you know, they criticize me for getting, you know, my news from NPR, but they have solved every problem in the world from only reading the Bible. And they see me as having a limited resource. Whereas for me, I'm like, that's one book. You know, I hope I'm not offending you right now, but you know. Not in the least. You know, it's like, it's, it's, that's one book. Yeah. Some people call it the great book, but it's. Well, it's, here's it's, the thing. It, that is one book that a hundred people can read and give you a hundred different views on it. Right. Well, that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. It's one book that has caused many wars. I want one of my favorite jokes that I only told once and and I probably won't ever tell it again. But, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about being Jewish in the South. And I'm like, you know, when I moved down here, I just I couldn't understand. Like, there's a different kind of church on every corner. Yes. You know, I didn't know there were so many ways to disagree about loving Jesus. Mm -hmm. And and nobody thinks that's funny because they're all offended by it, terrible. you know. But but well, because you're <laughs> comic you know you're like you're uh you're seeing the humor in it you know and it's i think it's too close to home for people you know and i'm telling it in the south maybe if i told that joke well and, here's the thing know. in the south uh the religious views in the south is a fear of jesus a fear of going to hell so you're going to be good with the hopes that there's a heaven right you know would you really be that good if you thought there wasn't a hell Probably not. It's the fear that keeps your happy ass in line is what it does. Right. You I know? wasn't brought up with that. As a Jew, you're not brought up with that. Right. You know, you're brought up with you do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I think you don't even have to be religious. You don't have to believe in heaven or hell. You do what's right. Innately, we know what is right. Correct. Yeah. That's why I'm always amazed when so much shit goes wrong in the world. You know, like. I mean, I don't know how you voted this time, and you don't have to say because I know you don't want to uh, uh, polarize your audience, but I don't understand how people voted for Trump. I just don't get it. Like, it, it, I think those that voted for Trump, and I'm not, and it sounds like I'm speaking for them, but in trying to analyze it, I think they were like, let's, he's the lesser of the two evils. They've been politically correct for eight years. I think Hillary's evil. I think by nature she is an evil woman. But the Democrats are more, I'm very much for social issues. Mm. You know, I've got a gay brother. And at 68, if I could have an abortion on the main highway going through Chattanooga, I would. Women should be in charge of their bodies. If there's a heaven and a hell, they'll take it up with Jesus later on. Right. You can't tell me what I can do with my body. I believe in euthanasia. If you've had all that you can do, and you're ready to check out, you should have that ability to check out on your own. It is your body. Unless you have children. And that changes everything. You know, because you have an obligation to your dying day. Having given birth to a child. But, um, you know, is Donald Trump a lunatic? Yeah. But I also think Hillary's a lunatic. And the vote in itself is just like... You know, you weren't casting the vote because 
I believe 100% in this person. Right. You know, every time I've ever voted before, I was just, oh. You know, when I go to vote, I'd like to drape myself in an American flag and sing God Bless America. My dad was in the Navy 23 years. He was at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. I'm very much military-oriented. I've always been Democrat, but I've been hawkish on war. Mm. And um, this this thing, this has been a circus, a complete circus. And I think everybody's very fearful of what's going to happen in the near future, as we should be. But I think we would have been just as fearful if she'd gotten in there. Different fears. Yeah. You know? um, I wouldn't go so far as to call her evil, but I don't disagree with what I think you mean when you say it. Like, I understand why people despise her. I think she would have been a better president than she was a candidate. I think she was just a terrible candidate. She was a horrible candidate. But she came in there... She was already the nominee as soon as Obama was voted in that second four years. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all know that. Yeah. Okay. And she thinks she's untouchable. And um, let me tell you, I was happiest when Bill Clinton was in office. I had more money when Bill Clinton was office, was in office. But let's face it, I did not have sex with that woman. So now everybody thinks, young people think oral sex is not sex. You know, Bill Clinton set a precedence with that. Here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see whomever serves as president has served in the military. Two years, four years, whatever. They don't have to be a lifer. And um, I'd like for them to surround themselves with really knowledgeable people. It scares me to know that uh, Trump is it his secretary of state that's the CEO of Exxon? Yes. Who never cleared up the Valdez and his personal friends with Putin? I have a problem with that. Yeah. I have a serious problem with that. The vote's been done. It's been counted. All we can do now is either, you know, hope for the best or kiss our ass and say goodbye. It's your two choices. Yeah. I mean, that's it's a, it's a scary one. I tr- I've stopped reading the news and everything because I just can't take it on like I was really going down you know oh, I was too I was just I was unable to separate myself from what was happening around me and how terrifying it was and so I did I finally you know just like I unplugged and I've been a lot better since then and I have one Facebook page called Donald Trump is not my president that I'm a member of and so I can look on that page and see what are the people who don't like him choosing to share of all the awful things that have happened, you know? And then I can kind of keep tabs on it that way and I can choose whether or not to go to it. And I know that's what I'm going to get when I go there. And I've, and I've stopped unless it's really, really important, but even then I'm trying not to do it. I don't like to put his picture on my Facebook page. I don't like to put his name on my Facebook page because I think it's all publicity for him. I really think he he won based on the old adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity. And he just he was just a master of getting everybody to talk about him all the time. And he tweeted because the media was not giving him fair coverage or that's how he felt. So I'll do it through a tweet. And people were plugged into that. You know, and they were like, "Well, he's attainable. You know, he's speaking for us." It's high time we brought companies back to the United States. There's no doubt about that. Building a wall? Are you kidding me? You know, um, 
I live in a condo community, and there are um, Hispanics and that do the landscaping. I've never seen a harder working group of people. Totally. Are they illegals? I don't care. They're working their asses off, and they're doing jobs that nobody else is wanting to do. You know what I mean? I'm not going to mow my yard. I'm an old woman. I'm not mowing my damn yard. Um, they work hard, and but you know he got forty percent of the Hispanic vote, and here's what I think that forty percent was made up of: those that came here legally, because when they come here legally, even if it's one of their own, meaning their ethnic background, they want you to go through the same thing that they went through, and I think it was those against those that are are illegals. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a huge... Look at the women that voted for him. I know. I, I, that, I, I don't that, understand that. I, I have no explanation for that. None. Yeah. Absolutely none. I broke up with someone. We were kind of breaking up anyway, but the nail in the coffin for me of no of like no point of no return was when she voted for Trump. And she... I, I talk about her on stage. I just didn't mention the Trump thing last night. Um, she's a lot younger than I am. I've never dated anyone that much younger than me, but I didn't know she was that young until I already we had already just realized we liked each other and uh-huh. I'm not going to not do it because she's young, you know, she's legal, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, you know, that would have stopped me. But, as, but, uh, you know, she, when we met, she was like, I'm not into politics. I don't care. I don't believe it. I don't think it matters. Voting isn't important. And I was like, well, I, I really urge you to think differently. And this election is really important and there's a lot on the line and, and, you know, I'd like you to vote and I'd like you to vote for Hillary, you know? And I don't know how you could not. You're a woman, and and you're a minority. She was Cuban, and and uh, I just don't see how you could vote for someone who wants people like you out of the country. You know, you're not here illegally. You were born here, but someone in your family got here, right? You know, not the way they're supposed to. And and if they do decide to uh, just throw everyone out of the country who's not white, you're going to be on that list. You know. And not that that's obviously really going to happen. She's not Muslim. Uh, But anyway, you know, she kind of went off the radar for a while, off the grid, and I didn't know what was going on. And then um, we sort of communicated enough to realize, like, this relationship's over. And then Trump won. And she had been telling me, you know, I think Trump's going to win. And I was, like, yelling at her, you know. Uh, it's like he can't win. He's not going to win. That's impossible. You know, this is be this is before the second round of FBI stuff happened. You know, it was right after the groping incident or no, the the pussy grabbing, mm-hmm. you know, thing. And I said, "There's no way he's going to." win. She's like, "I don't know." A lot of you know, she's a uh, a lot of Latinos are voting for him, and a lot of Black people. She's like, "I'm surprised how many of them are going to vote for Trump." And then she, you know, then I said, like I said, we kind of went our separate ways. And then the election happened and he won. And I posted this thing on Facebook that was like my letter of resignation or not resignation, uh, concession. It was my concession speech on Facebook because I'd been very active about it during the whole campaign. And uh, I didn't mention her by name, but I, I said, if she reads this, she'll know that I'm talking about her, you know, and she was right. And I really just couldn't I couldn't see that she was right. But these are her people and she's more in touch with her people than I am. Right. And. And so she called me as soon as she read it, and 
told me all, she was all giddy and excited. Like her, you know, like the person she text voted for on American Idol had won. You know, or like her World Series team had won, right. you know, and she was like, I'm so excited. She's like, you won't believe what happened. They say, I've been doing all this research and I really did a lot of reading and I went down and I wasn't registered. And they said, oh, it's OK. You can register. And they let me register. And I voted. He won. I'm so excited. He won. I voted for Trump and he won. I'm like, you voted for Trump? And she said, yeah, and he won. I'm just so excited. And she couldn't understand how not there I was. But here's the deal. She did her research, and after her doing her research, that's what she found validation in. So really, who are you to say to her, I can't believe you could vote that way, because through your research, you validated your vote for Hillary. I, I agree with you, theoretically. Um, I First of all, I told her, I said, I'm really, I'm proud of you for, I want you to know I'm proud of you for voting. Like, I'm really... I think it's really great that you did your research and that, and I wish you'd made a different decision, but I respect the fact that you researched it and this is the decision you made. You know, I did, I did say that to her. However, with the whole fake news business, her research may not have been such great research. She may have been reading a lot of fake news and not realizing she was reading fake news. That happened to a lot of people. Right. And... I listened to some interviews with the sort of kingpin of the fake news because they found him on NPR and they talked to him. Mm -hmm. And and they said, why didn't you do fake news about the, you know, about Trump? And he said, because the liberals, they go to Snopes. They figure out right away that it's not real. And so it wasn't working. You know, he said, I found it was a lot easier to fool the Republicans and fool the Trump supporters with fake news about Hillary. You know, we would publish, they would publish articles about stuff that didn't happen with the name of a town that didn't exist and people who had never been born. And this would become, you know, Fox would be saying it was real and Trump would be saying it was real. Like the, and the entire community of Trump supporters would absolutely believe that this was real news. Right. And not be discerning enough to know that it, you know, it sounds a little crazy or it sounds a little off, or do a little research to find out if maybe it was or was not true. My sense is a lot of the research she did probably fell into the category of fake news, and she didn't know. So if she knew all that, I don't know if she would have made the same decision. The truth is she's Catholic, or some she's religious, and I think the abortion issue for her was a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. And... She just could never have an abortion. She said even if she got raped, she wouldn't have an abortion. And I can respect, I respect that. You know, I, I respect that. I, I don't agree I don't, with it, yeah. but I respect it. I respect whatever decision she wants to make about her life and her body. Absolutely, I respect it. You know, I, In fact, I admire someone who would carry a child to term in spite of you know, being the child being a product of a rape. I mean, I can't think of anything harder as a parent, you know, because I'm a parent. And it's hard enough being a parent when you love your child, you know, and you like their parent, their other parent and the whole thing. It's like, but if, if your memory was that trauma, I just, how you would do that is beyond me. But I have nothing but respect for someone who would be able to do that. Uh, now, choosing to tell other people what they can't do, and this is to your point earlier, I know we are on the same page on this. You know, telling other women that they can't have an abortion 
I'm sorry. I can't accept that. You know, it's not your choice to tell other people what they can do. It is not your choice. And, And, you know, um, how long are we going to beat a dead horse, the gay community and abortion? You know, let it go. Let it go. What are we still talking about that? I, I don't understand why we're talking about that. I agree. I mean, I, my idea, my attitude is if you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. Right. If you don't believe in gay married, gay marriage, don't marry a gay guy. I can stop the gay community. Straight people need to quit having gay children. <laughs> End of closed. problem. End of problem. Right why there. has nobody thought of that? I don't know. I'm a genius. You're, you're <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why no one has thought of that. But, um, you know, I just think in this world, people do the best that they can do. You know, and everybody's just trying to get by. And if you're not stepping on anybody else and you're living your life without hurting someone else, live your life. I mean, I agree. You know, I, I, uh... I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I am constantly getting someone knocking at my door. Would you like to go to church? No. I can stand in my front yard and throw rocks in four different directions and hit four different churches. If I need to go to church, I'm quite capable of finding a church. I know that you have to come and be a prophet of the Lord and try to get me to go to church. I only find it irritating, you know. Why don't I go to church with you this Sunday, and next Sunday you stay at home with me, and we'll eat pizza. Let's do that. But I don't knock on your door and go, hey, you want to eat pizza Sunday? You're going to do whatever you want to do on Sunday. Don't suck me into what you have bought into, and I'm not going to try to get you to buy into what I I believe. Um, But, you know, you're either with us or against us. It can't be middle of the road. I always want to say, you know, I almost did it recently because it was uh, it was a Sunday. My daughter spent the night with her, really, one of her best friends. And that family's very Christian and they're extremely nice. But I limit my, I limit her time with them because I don't want her to be that kind of a Christian. Right. You know, her mother's Catholic, so they celebrate, but not even strict. Her mother really considers herself a pagan, but she comes from a Catholic family and they celebrate all the Christian holidays. That's hard enough for me, frankly, but I try to be supportive of it. And her mom is supportive of her Jewish background on my side of the family. And, and, uh, but I don't want her being in what I would call a borderline evangelical Christian environment too much of the time. And so one time I let them take her to church, uh, but this time I was like, I'll pick her up on Sunday morning before you go to church. And we got there and the dad who kind of had lost a brother recently. So he recently sort of discovered Christ mm-hmm. um, or he kind of returned to the church or whatever. He mm-hmm. said, I said, we're going to church. Why don't you come with us? And I'm like, no, thank you. You know, he's like, you sure? You know, and he didn't do He didn't do a hard sell, but even just like that little amount, I was like, eh. They have have to to do that. The Bible tells them they have to do that. Does that make it okay? No, it doesn't make it okay. Okay. Here's the amazing thing is that 
I love the Christians that say, you know, I used to drink. I beat the hell out of my wife. I wasn't good to my kids, and then I accepted the Lord. Really? Well, why did you do that shit to begin with? You know what I mean? Right. But now the Lord has saved you. Did the Lord save you, or did you decide to quit being an asshole? <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, people grow up. If your parents were Democrat, you're probably going to be Democrat. If yeah, they were Republican, you're probably going to be Republican. And with the Jewish faith, is it a religion or is it a culture? I, that's what I find intriguing about the Jew, Jewish faith because I think they combine themselves. I think it's also cultural, a way of life, and as well as a religion. I can tell you for me, it's largely cultural. I mean, I don't go to services. I was bar mitzvahed, which was a great experience. Uh, but I don't, I don't practice really any religion. I mean, for a long time I had a meditation teacher and my spiritual life was pretty intense and pretty Eastern, you know, and I have a yoga company. I mean, I'm, I'm into all that shit, you know, but, uh, I'm extremely close with the rabbi here, the Orthodox rabbi at the Chabad center. He's one of my favorite beings on the planet he's just amazing uh you i'm sure you'd love him if you met him you guys would have a lot of fun he doesn't like the cussing of but outside of that and let me tell you i wouldn't cuss no of course him. you would yeah you know, but this com but him. every other piece of this conversation you could have with him no problem and that's what i love about him like you can talk to him about anything and he's very realistic and 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 that the chabad is they're all about taking the ancient teachings of judaism and making them applicable to modern life I can't think of a better approach than that. And so, you know, my affinity for him is uh, I like him as a person, but it's more cultural. Like we laugh our asses off whenever we talk and we talk about profound stuff. And as a Jew, you just there's certain ways of being brought up that you just vibe with other Jews in a way you don't with non-Jews. Sure, the same as Baptist with Baptist and Church of Christ with Church of Christ. Right, And yeah. Episcopalians and Catholics. That's just, it, it works better like that. Right, exactly. You know, you know the Church of Christ, they think they're going to be the only ones in heaven. <laughs> you know, and they don't believe in music in the church. Your voice is the music. Um, you know, um, Religion is a very touchy subject, but I find it extremely intriguing. I've always been intrigued with religion and people that follow certain religious aspects. Yeah, I mean, I it's uh, I, I I to me, there's a difference between being spiritual, being religious, and being orthodox, and you know, and really being like fundamentalist. I'll use that word more than orthodox, you know, because right. fundamentalists are the problem. You know, people who are religious are almost sort of like mindlessly doing enough to kind of feel like they're doing the right thing, you know. And then people who are spiritual are consciously trying to do the right thing and they may or may not be succeeding. Uh, that's if I were to nutshell it. That's mm -hmm. that's that's how I do it. Um, I think fundamentalists, whether they're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist, they're they're the problem. Because the, anyone who's fundamental, fundamentalist can't really or won't really choose to see outside of the fundamentals of their faith. And really, I mean, we're all just trying to figure out 
what, if anything, is the meaning to being on this planet and having this life? And, and People have such power, parents in particular. You can have the most beautiful, intelligent child and tell them that they're stupid and ugly, and they grow up believing they're stupid and ugly. That's a lot of power. Yeah, that is a lot of power. That is a whole lot of power. Religion has that same power. You certainly don't want to go to hell. So surely you will accept Christ as your Savior to prevent you from going to hell. You know, you just don't cover your ass in case there's a hell. You either believe that way or you don't. And I think a lot of people just cover their ass just in case. Have you ever heard of um, the, uh, oh, um, what's his name? I want to say, I think it's the Pythagorean, there's a Pythagorean triangle, and I think it's the same guy. This is what he said about God, and I'm going to try and come up with the right name if it's not him. But he said, you know, if if, uh, God exists, God is infinite. And therefore, believing in God, then if God is real, the benefits are infinite. Uh, If I don't believe in God and God is real, the penalty is infinite. But if I do believe in God and God's not real, it's a very small loss. And if I... Nothing ventured, nothing yeah, gained. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, so he said, I choose, to, oh, I, I choose to believe in God because in case I'm right, then the benefits are infinite, right. you know? And uh, so it really is just hedging your bets. Yes, it you is. Know? Um, and really the only difference between an atheist and a Christian is blind faith. Atheists have no blind faith. Right. You have to have blind faith to be a Christian, to be a believer. You have to. Right. Because you can only answer questions back so far. You know, the chicken or the egg. You know, there's got to be blind faith in there somewhere. You know what I mean? Right. And that, to me, is the only difference between an atheist and a Christian. That's the, that's the story of the, the turtles all the way down. Have you ever heard that? Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the earth sitting on the t- <laughs> the shell of a turtle. I love that. Oh, man. So do you have a spiritual practice? Do you have a spiritual life? or mm, You mean do I belong to a church? No, 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 no. Oh, spiritual. You know, we we sling that term around every all the time. You know, um, I look for the good in people, and I try to be a good person. Do I fall short? Oh, definitely. Um, but here's how I view charitable work. You don't post when you do something charitable. You don't tell anybody when you do something charitable. You don't go under the bridge where the true homeless people live. They're not the ones begging, but those that don't want to be seen, they want to be out of sight and feed those people and then go, today I was under the bridge feeding the poor people. No, asshole, you didn't do a charitable thing. You did that or professed to do that so you can look better in other people's eyes. Right. You know, I just don't think that you share charitable things. Am I a spiritual person? I don't know if you'd call me a spiritual person. Um, You know, I believe, I try to believe the good in people. And I think when people are dealt a bad hand, sometimes they do bad things. I wish I could come up with the formula. Wish I could think of the young girl's name. She always wanted to be a writer for the New York Times. Always wanted to be a writer. 
and they did a documentary about her or she was like on 60 minutes and both of her parents were crack addicts she was in high school mm-hmm. and whichever one she could find because many times she lived in stairwells was never raped you know she under the circumstances she she came through as much unscathed physically as you could be she would take the parent that she could find clean him up go to school and she got into harvard she graduated from harvard That's unbelievable yeah and became one of the editors you know with the new york times what was it about that girl that said, and and they asked her do do you hate your parents no they did the best they could they were crack addicts what's the difference in that girl and somebody goes you can't expect much about me my parents are crack addicts i'm slinging drugs that's how it is what was it with her that was 180 degrees different with the one that followed the path that their parents chose if we could figure that out there'd be no more crime yeah juvenile we wouldn't need juvenile court i mean that's such an outlier you know in the most positive way i mean i i I love that story i've never heard it and i think about it all the time because you know i come from a fairly privileged background i mean not super privileged i was around a lot of super privileged kids and i was always the, the poor kid in the rich school you know um but and when i say poor just poor compared to them right you know still middle class family but living a little beyond our means kind right. of thing uh and you know there's plenty of times that i complain about stuff i spent a lot of time in therapy you know trying to fine tune the issues and i'm just always amazed by people who come from just real horror show backgrounds and where do they find that gumption to rise above it like there's nothing around them because it was never implanted in them they didn't have parents that showed them you can do this you can accomplish this they were crack addicts and she was living in stairwells she got into harvard how like that's what amazes me like i'm just so blown away by people like that i'm with you like i'm you know i mean our daughter she's like you know, my, my, my stepmom is visiting, and um, my daughter's very close with all of her grandmothers. She has three completely unique and extremely intimate relationships with her grandmothers, and it's fantastic. And my uh, stepmom's staying with us, and the two of them were on the couch knitting or doing something for like two hours. And I'm working in my bedroom, and my daughter, the second they were done, my daughter walks in, and she's like, I'm bored. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, in only in the time it took you to walk in from the other room, have you been entertained for the last two hours? Right. I said, I'm one working. One on one. Yeah, exactly. Like, undivided attention. I said, I got to work, but go get some books and you can sit on my bed and read. And then she did. And she was fine. She's like, oh, okay, I could do that. You know, thankfully, we have a child mm-hmm. who likes to read. But just that that idea that, like, you know, just the second something isn't there she needs to be entertained and you know her mom and i we're separated but we still agree on a fair number of parenting issues and one of the sort of four letter words in our house in both houses is i'm bored you know she's almost not allowed to say it you know i was a counselor for delinquent boys for the state of tennessee for seven years all i ever heard from these boys was i'm bored 
I'm bored. You can have $10,000 worth of electronic material, you know, things, games and stuff, and they're bored. But invariably, they all would say, they couldn't call me Janet, they call me Miss W. They go, Miss W, because I was the counselor late night. That's when kids want to talk. And they said, um, one-on-one, my parents didn't love me. How do you know that? They never disciplined me. Mm. Because kids know early on, it's a job to discipline. It's regimentation. You you can't put it on the back burner. It has to be addressed immediately. You may be doing something different. But they said, had they disciplined me, I would have known that they had loved me. And it's funny about boys. I was an excellent counselor for boys. And I could tell you in a very short time if a boy had been molested. Mm. I am so not in tune to young girls. Interesting. Not in tune to them at all. Didn't want to counsel young girls. Oh, boys, what you see is what you get, you know. Um, but if their mother happened to be schizophrenic and came to the group home and lipstick was way outside the line of her lips, she had on fishnet holes that were torn, those boys knew that that was this kid's mother. They never made fun of each other's mothers, ever. It was off limits. Interesting. So even delinquents have got limitations. This is a funny story. I had a kid, 13 years old, held up a bank in Chattanooga, Tennessee. At 13? At 13. Okay. Okay, went in with a shotgun, got $8,700. So I asked him, we'll call him John. I said, John, what kind of car did you drive to the bank? And he said to me, Miss Debbie, I'm only 13. I'm not old enough to drive. I was on my bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) Old enough to carry his sawed-off shotgun and get $8,700 in cash. If he hadn't been spending like a drunk sailor, they probably would have never caught him. But it's amazing how there... I had one kid that shot the Domino's pizza man in the leg. He ordered pizza. He knew he didn't have money to pay for it. And he shot him in the leg. And I go, well, let's talk about that. What What do you think you did wrong? You know, right. you shot the pizza man in the leg. He goes, well, he wouldn't leave the pizza like I told If he had left the pizza, I wouldn't have had to shoot him. When that's your mindset, yeah. how do you argue with that? Maybe you shouldn't have ordered something that you couldn't afford. But that was not even one of the selections. Right. He just thought he could point the gun and get the free pizza. He didn't know he'd have to shoot him. Right. Yeah, I know there's, uh, you know, the fun, one of the great things about being in the comedy scene, and I'm with, I'm around a bunch of 20 year olds, you know, that's not the best part. They all think I'm an old man. And be in my shoes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at your stage, having been on the road for 20 years, you're around people of all ages. Right. You know, I mean, I would imagine. I mean, it's just, uh, although you're a road dog at 68. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Uh, I just, I just, I love, I love it. I'm so in awe of who you are and and how you live. Uh, Don't be too excited. (laughs) I'm, it's, I'm just in awe of the fact that you do it and the, and the attitude with which you do it. I mean, every interaction we've had on the phone has been just like, Jason, I'm going to make your life as easy as I can. I don't care when I go up. I don't care about this or that. And, and every interaction I've had with you in person has been along the same lines. I mean, it's been nothing but joy. Uh, you know, you, you're, you, to me, you're totally unembittered by the road, which is an, it's, it's such a tough, tough, 
path, you know, and I'm just getting started on it. I mean, I'm the age you were when you started. Exactly. So now I'm doing comedy mostly on the open mic scene and occasionally, you know, a, a curated showcase if I'm lucky. And I'm meeting a lot of these young kids and a lot of these there's a number of kids who are African-American kids from really like tough backgrounds, but mm-hmm. they're able to do it, you know, mm-hmm. they're and they're able to function. They're not mean. They're not bullies. You know, they're able to function in a way that gets them gigs and lets them stay in the scene, you know. And one kid in particular I'm thinking of, a uh, really funny guy, really, really great stage presence and just has to, you know, write more material. But he does a piece about getting his first dog. He's like, you know, my dog, my dad took me to the dog fights and the one that won, he said, that's your dog. And then we took home this pit bull who had like, you know, tally marks on his collar and stuff and does this whole bit. And they said, you know, and the dog ran away and my dad's like, oh, I guess we got to get a new dog. It's like, no, we're responsible for that dog. And, and I just, I love that this young kid, he has that. I mean, he has so much going for him that I don't think he's aware of, you know, number one. He's got the wherewithal to get himself out of the inner city where he grew up and into a scene where he can actually thrive. And he will thrive. He's going to do great. And then also, like, he can look at this story, and I don't know how many elements of it are true, but if it didn't happen to him, it happened around him. Right. And, you know, and and he's like, for him to be the one to say to the dad, no, we're responsible for that thing. We can't just let it go. Like he has to be the parent. But you know, here's the thing. Your background at whatever level of privilege was, was not what his was. So you're going to be more in awe of him because of the negative numbers he came from. Right. That's true. Yeah. 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 I'm on, I'm in awe of anyone who, who, can overcome whatever the negatives are in their life. You know, it's like when I started in comedy, of course, after a while, university was really good about letting me get off when I needed to go do comedy. And then when I was a counselor, that lady was really good to me. Every every single supervisor I've had, I've learned so much from. Um, but you know, when I started out, well, I had to leave those jobs that were financially stable. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do to pick up the ends, you know, because I'm not making enough money doing this. I started cleaning houses. So when I hear a young comic go, well, I've got a girlfriend. You know, she's a nurse. That's usually how it goes. Right. Or she's a teacher. You know, I couldn't do this on my own. And I go, you know, you're a young comic. Let me tell you how it works for a male comic. She saw you at a comedy club, and she's like, oh, you're so funny. Now she's madly in love with you because you made her laugh. Six months after moving in with her, she's going to go, okay, funny boy, how about getting a job and making some money? You're not going to be funny anymore. Right. So you need to stand on your own. And when somebody goes, well, I just don't know what to do to make money. I was the most educated person cleaning your commode. Two bachelor's degrees, a master's degree, and two years of law school. And I was not law school material. Okay? <laughs> it's amazing I even got in. Um, but... Just understand, to get where you want to go, sometimes you have to do shitty jobs. Right. And it depends on how badly you want to get where you want to go. Well, when you know that this is the thing you want to do, then everything else rallies around it. You right. Because, it's it's... you know, when you think about it, Jason, when we tell people that are not in this business, I drove for eight hours, what kind of money did you make? $75. What? 
your friends will never ever understand what you're doing any more than my friends understand what I'm doing. Right. But I'm telling you, the payoff is that time on stage. And once that bug has bitten you, it's over. Yeah, that's so over. It'd be so nice if there was a vaccine to cure us, but there's not. There is really nothing like it. I mean, the amount of time and energy I'm putting into this weekend just so I can be the host, you know. I mean, there's not enough money And in you're the not world. just the host. You're a really good host. Oh, well, that's... You're very sweet. You really are a good host. Oh, thank and you. And you're, you're, you're a good comic. You can go in f- as far in this business as you choose to. And when people go, well, does it upset you, Janet, that other people have had a Comedy Central special? But they worked harder. And there is one smidgen of luck tied with this. The right person you s- seeing you at the right time. But there's a lot of young people out there, and they know what their goal is. It'd be great if I could have a sitcom built around me. That'd be wonderful. But I've not put forth the effort for that. I've put forth just enough effort to be doing what I love doing. You know, where the next person, you know, Roy Woods was by far more motivated than me. And look how it's paid off for Roy Woods. Keith Alberstadt. You know, um, they've all, you know, they've all reached a different level of success than I have. Do I think they're any happier than I am? It would be pretty impossible to be happier than me. You may equal my happiness, but I doubt that you surpass it. I think that's a perfect spot to close it. Let's do it. I mean, I could talk to you all day, but... uh, I mean... I just love knowing that you're that happy. And And I have really really enjoyed this conversation i and i'm gonna be honest with you jason i was like oh i don't understand this podcast bullshit i don't know why we're doing this i've never enjoyed something more than i've enjoyed the time we've spent together never well i hope you, i hope you mean that because i really feel the same way it's I, like, I thoroughly enjoyed this yeah. but i don't mind telling you i was like ah oh, i gotta take my toothbrush and toothpaste over there i've got to take my leopard pants that i'm known for <laughs> oh this is just gonna suck it's been fabulous. And I, took, I thank you for including me. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm just so happy you were willing to do it. You know, uh, I took a picture of you from the sound booth with your leopard pants because my daughter has the same leggings. <laughs> and <laughs> she's just going to love the fact that you were wearing them. <laughs> so tonight when she's coming to the party. Oh, good. And so I will introduce you to her if I, I may. I want to meet her. Uh, and uh, Holly's my stepmom. My daughter is Sula. Um I want to introduce you to her so you can, uh, so she can see you wearing those leggings. I just think that's going to be the perfect. I can't thing. wait to meet Sula. Oh, she and she's my very first Sula to meet. She, so there are very exciting. few. So one funny thing, I just happened today. Uh, I I woke up this morning and it's like so and so, you know, accepted your friend request. There is a guy in Africa named Sula Said, which is spelled the same as Sula said. And so when I do a Sula Said search on Facebook, I get some kid named Sula Said, and he has this bling necklace that says Sula Said on it. And I want to know where the hell he got it. Like, I want that <laughs> necklace. And so I friended him like three years ago. And today he finally accepted my friendship, which is just so funny to me. Like, I, so I so I can't wait to connect with this guy and, you know, like know this Muslim in Africa who hopefully isn't dangerous, you know, um, and you know, kind of get to know this guy and, and hopefully get that necklace, you know, or, you know, get one like it. I mean, I just, it's just so funny to me. I was like, 
Sula is such an unusual name. And when we had her, then people started sending us like a book called Sula and people and there's somebody had a dog named Sula and and one of the rabbis who came so I have my Chabad rabbi and then he brought in another Chabad buddy to kind of be the second rabbi and his name was Shulamith, which is the same name. It's just the male version of Sula and because my daughter Sulamith, which is the German and he's he is Shulamith, which is the Hebrew and it's the same name. I didn't know it was also a male name. So that was weird, you know. No one called him Shula, but uh, I just just the fact that not only is it such an unusual name, but I have Sula said, and there's some guy whose name is Sula Saeed. Uh-huh. You know, I just couldn't get over that. So anyway, we're now friends on Facebook. We'll see where that leads. But and uh, that's going to be great when you've got one of those necklaces. Oh yeah, oh totally. <laughs> I, I'm going to give it to her for her birthday one year. So, um, but really, Janet, I mean, thank you for sitting down with me and uh and just for being the person that you are i mean you are just you're so genuine and you're just like the way i'm not trying to pander to you i don't want i don't want to feel that way um i just love who you are on stage and i love that you're the same person sitting here in the room on the couch you know i i unless you just perform for interviews and stage no but i'll tell you what is surprising is that um People that are my personal friends, you, you know, you treat every group of people a little bit differently than next. Sure. But the essence of you is going to come through with everyone. And it always surprises me when, you know, if I meet people after a show and we go out to eat, they're expecting me to be that character. And then I don't cuss and I'm listening mm. to them because I want to learn things from them. And they're like, you're nothing like you are on stage. That's a character. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a character. There's a part of Janet Williams in that, but the Tennessee Tramp is pretty much on her own, you know. And I always, I really like coming across as a whore. (laughs) (laughs) See what I mean? She's hilarious, right? No wonder my mom had lunch with her. As an up-and-coming comic, I get to work with a lot of really funny people. I also meet a lot of truly decent people. And Janet, I got to meet both at once. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't keep it to yourself. Tell somebody. Tell everybody. Don't bogart your happiness. Tweet about it. Rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and post your comments on our website. Utilize our Amazon portal, and please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing forever.